Welcome to No One Source. Um, so yeah, we are all from Youth Radio, um, which is a youth-driven uh, production company, a national newsroom headquartered in Oakland, California. And I wanted to start by saying a word about the name of our panel, No One Source, because of course, like everybody else here, um, we do, our reporting does rely on sources. Um, but what is different in the way we work is that we collaborate with young people, by that I mean teenagers and college-age young adults, who very often are relegated to that role of source, but with us, they are reporters of their own stories and other people's stories and stories in their communities and around the country. Um, so, uh, you know, they do the work and they get the byline and they're with the process through its entire duration and they get final editorial say. Um, and obviously, you can imagine there are some challenges that come with working with young people in this capacity. Um, when they're, in particular, when they're producing stories for um, national outlets, so we're NPR's youth desk and we do stories for the New York Times and Teen Vogue. Um, but there are also really powerful opportunities to tell new stories in different ways um, when you give this kind of work a shot. So that's what we want to dig into today. Um, and we are going to leave lots of time for a conversation. Um, we're going to mostly dwell on two stories from Youth Radio's recent archives. Um, Noelle's, uh, Anaya's story about aging out of foster care, and then a story that Teresa um, produced with our colleague V. Hines about um, hiding teen homelessness. And um, so there's two big questions that we'll ask you to kind of keep in mind um, as you listen and as you participate in the conversation. And one is really just like, what does it look like to um, share in the editorial process in this way from beginning to end? And two, what are the lessons um, from the work that we share for the kind of production and storytelling that you all do in like every environment represented in this room? And I know there are lots of different storytelling contexts here. Um, so yeah, we already introduced ourselves. I'm Lissa. <laughs> I'm Noel. And I'm Teresa. And we also want to acknowledge Brett Myers in the room who worked with Noel on the story that he's going to talk about. So Brett, we're going to put you on the spot and hopefully you can join in at any moment <laughs> um, uh, to you know, hear more about the making of, of that particular story. Um, and we should acknowledge that you know, Youth Radio has been around for 25 years, so we're very grounded in journalism and public media. But we also take our cues from um, lots of places where this kind of work is happening. Um, maybe we have some fans of Master of None in the room, and maybe some of you saw the wonderful episode um, from season two, the Thanksgiving episode, which um, Aziz Ansari co-wrote with Lena Waithe. Um, about her story of um, coming out. So she basically went from being an actress in, um, in the, that episode to being the creator of that narrative. And later, um, Aziz Ansari talked to Terry Gross and, and basically said, when someone that's not you tries to tell your story, especially when they don't look like uh, the person whose story you're trying to tell, you're gonna screw it up. And the only way to get it right is to have them be as involved as possible. So that's as you can tell, part of how we got the inspiration for, um, for the way we frame the panel, and it really is that question of as involved as possible, um, and what that pivot looks like from being someone in the story to the framer and maker and creator of the story that we're gonna talk about. Okay, so this is where I get to take over for a second. Um, so once again, I'm Teresa Chin, I'm a senior producer. 
Um, and I think like, how many producers do we have in the room here? Can I just see hands? So like all of us basically. Um, so I'm just preaching to the choir here, but as producers, our job most of the time is to go out, find other people's stories and produce them with the hope that we don't screw it up. Um, and I think there are many ways to do that really well, and this is just one way that we're unpacking here. But just take a moment now and think of yourself not as a producer, but as a person who has your own story. And maybe some of you actually have that story in your head. Maybe you have a big story or you have like an intimate story that you've considered or you have told. Just like take a moment and actually think of that story in your head right now. And I want you to look over at the person to your left and you're not gonna tell them that story because that's really, really scary. And that's the point is that when you see this view, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm like, I am freaked out right now. This is really scary. And this is what we do all the time to other people. <laughs> do you like my listening face, by the way? I'm really concerned. Tell me more about that. Um, but I, I think part of the fear is not just because of making your face is scary, but it's when you hand over your story to, for someone else to tell, there's a real risk that they might not tell your story the way that you feel like your story should be told. And I want to ground us in that feeling because that is the challenge that we're trying all to address here. So let's see what it looks like to actually be living and reporting as well as experiencing it exactly at the same time. <clears throat> so we're just going to play some clips real quick. And this is just a flashback to some of the post-production. We'll play the actual story, but for now we're gonna show you a clip of the pre-production in the studio. And just a little introduction, the story is, I'm 21 years old and the story takes place in the courtroom and I am getting ready to get the findings to get age out of foster care and I'm getting ready to re read a letter to the judge. and. Uh, this is a story produced by Youth Radio, and it was aired on NPR. So this, just to put you in the scene, um, my producer, Brett Myers, is asking me basically how many people are on my caseload. I've, I've had multiple therapists my whole life. Um, they've always changed. And then um, case managers, I, yeah, we've had a, I've had a lot of EEs. I've had a lot of YAs. Um, I can't even put a number on that, an indefinite number, probably like 10. Mm -hmm. um, and then advocates and mentors, I've had about three or four. So there's a lot of people that I, I um, have to tell my story to, and that's kind of what also got me into radio and into public speaking. Is like, if I'm just telling people everything, why don't I just freaking broadcast it? <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, and we're going to get to hear what what you broadcast, what you turned um, what you turned that initial thought into. But uh, Noah, maybe you can say something about well, how did you get the idea to both present a letter to the judge at this hearing, which is the hearing that is where you're going to age out of foster care, having you know come into the system when, before you turn two, right? Exactly. Yeah, how did you get the idea to? use that opportunity to share a letter with the judge and then how did you get the idea to um you know turn it into a story and what you know what was different about living the experience and then um sharing it for radio yeah so why don't i share the freaking story um <laughs> so if 
those of you who don't know too much about foster care, every six months you have a court hearing. And it's not mandatory for you to go, but it is mandatory for a reporter, producer, a representative to come and interview and do a write-up of the young folks that are in foster care exhibit A. And I would just remember having them just do like a casual interview, just getting a little bit of feedback from me so when my court hearings come around the corner, they'll have a write-up to go and tell the judge. And for me, you know, I always decided, I made a definitive choice never to go to any of my court hearings because I just had this like burning sensation that I do not want to be involved with this system the way they want me to be involved. And I think a lot of my ideas come from my quarter life crises. I remember I was, um, I was sitting at home, it was November, and for me that's a really triggering month because it's my birthday and I remember back when I was in foster care, um, I felt like the time clock was ticking and I had to do something. And I had just started at youth radio and we were doing a little meeting and I remember having one goal when I went to youth radio and that was to really get some advocacy work in foster care because I do do a lot of policy work with that. And um, I went to my boss's boss's uh, office and I really appreciated that youth radio has this environment where I can be comfortable and going to my boss's boss's office. And I basically said, yo, check this out. I have a really good story. I think it's compelling. And if we do it right, then I think it'll get a lot of coverage. So should we listen? Yeah, let's go ahead and take a listen. Here's the actual story. Um, I'll just set it up for you real quick. Um, this is the actual piece, so you can actually see where we came up with it. And we're in the courtroom, and that's my lawyer, by the way. Um, and I'm just about getting ready to present this letter. So this is, just so you can pace yourselves, this is a six-minute story, and we're going to listen all the way through. When Noel Anaya was just a year old, he and his siblings were placed in the California foster care system. He has spent his life in foster care. He just turned 21, and in California, that's the age when young people exit the system and lose its support. It's made official at a court hearing. Anaya, along with Youth Radio, got rare permission to record the proceeding. You guys ready or do you need it's, more time? We're ready. You're ready? We're okay. ready. It's, it's rock and roll. In court, Anaya read a letter he wrote about his experience in the foster care system. Here's his story. Walking into court for my very last time as a foster youth, I feel like I'm getting a divorce from a system that I've been in a relationship with almost my entire life. It's bittersweet because I'm losing guaranteed money for food and housing, as well as access to my social workers and lawyer. But on the other hand, I'm relieved to finally get away from a system that ultimately failed me on its biggest promise, that one day it would find me a family who would love me. Good afternoon. Let's go on the record. This is line six, the matter of Noel Anaya. Noel. Noel Anaya. Thank you. You guys have been saying it wrong for 21 years? You know what? <laughs> Everybody pronounces it differently. Forgive so um, thank you, though. I'm, I'm glad to know it's Noel. Little it's things, like when my judge, Shauna Schwartz, mispronounces my name, serve as a constant reminder that, hey, I'm just a number. 
I often come away feeling powerless and anonymous in the foster care system. Well, I'm reviewing my notes, and it looks like um, the first time I got involved in your case was back in 2003. You've been in the system a long time. I don't have any pictures of my five siblings and me together as babies. Not a single one, which makes Throwback Thursdays a little challenging. My biological parents weren't ready to be parents. My father was abusive. Eventually, Child Protective Services got involved, and my siblings and I went into the foster care system. We were separated and shuffled between foster homes, group homes, and shelters, and for at least one of my siblings, incarceration. That's why it was really important to me to make a statement in court, going on the record about how the foster care system failed my siblings and me. I have to say, you have been pretty much one of our more successful young adults. Is there any advice you'd give us? To whom it may concern, this is the year that I divorce you. Your gray hands can no longer hurt me. Your gray hands can no longer overpower me. Your gray hands can never tell me that you love me because it's too late. I use gray hands to describe the foster care system because it never felt warm or human. It's institutional, opposite the sort of unconditional love I imagine that parents try to show their kids. Your gray hands just taught me how to survive in a world. We never learned how to love ourselves unconditionally. I've been with multiple foster families. I've been with multiple shelters. How does a person like me not end up with a family? In an ideal world, being a foster kid is supposed to be temporary. When it's stable and appropriate, the preference is to reunite kids with their parents or family members. Adoption is the next best option. I used to dream of it. Having a mom, a dad, siblings to play with, a dog. But when I hit 12, I realized that I was getting old, that adoption would probably never happen for me. In the system, I constantly had new social workers, lawyers, and case managers, which left me vulnerable. It wasn't until I got older that I realized one of the main causes for the turnover was because of low wages and overflowing caseloads. My own lawyer says he's currently juggling 130 other clients. At 21, you happily kick us off to the curb and say, good luck, I wish you well, I wish you the best, but you can't come back because we can't take you in. I've seen too many of my people give up on the educational system. And the I had hoped to finish college so by the time I aged out of foster care, but I'm still in my junior year. I'm committed to getting my bachelor's, despite the odds being terrible. I hope that you hear my words, and I hope that you listen to my signal of distress. I thank you for giving me closure. Thank you. All right, well, uh, thank you very much for being willing to share your, your feelings and your beliefs with us. So, um, you know, I know you have some, uh, sounds like some mixed feelings about the foster care system, but Noel, I have no doubt that you are going to be successful in whatever you choose to do. Well, let me uh, say the magic words. I will adopt the findings and the orders on the JV. As the judge reads her final orders closing out my case, I promise myself that I'll leave all the rage I feel about the foster care system inside the courtroom, that I won't carry that hate and frustration with me for the rest of my life. The dependency case will be dismissed. There will be no further reviews. All right, thanks. Let's go off the record. There's one more thing I need before I leave the courtroom. For the judge to bring the gavel down on this chapter of my life. 
Is that it? No, no, no hammer or no, no. Okay. One, one time for the, please. All right. You know we never do that in real life. I felt goosebumps when the gavel slapped down on my judge's desk. Happy because I'm no longer cared for by a system that was never that good at actually caring for me, and I'm anxious too about what my life might be like next. Take care. You too. I'm glad I was able to come. For NPR News, I'm Noel Anaya. That story was produced by Youth Radio. <laughs> I have a question, but is there something you want to say just hearing it? It just seems, seems so surreal still mm-hmm. that it happened. Yeah. Yeah, that the story happened or that the actual life event happened? I think the story, just mm-hmm. like, because it's highly illegal to record in the courtroom and the judge was actually giving me a hard time about uh, recording because I asked four days and apparently you need five days to get the <laughs> So that's why it's like, it just seems so surreal still sometimes. That you guys pulled that off to get permission in the first place to record because that, yeah, to your, your judge said that it never happened before. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, so much of that story is anchored in that one moment in your life that you knew was going to be like a do or die kind of moment as you've described it. Um, so there's a lot that you included in the story and then there's a lot that you and Brett and others figured couldn't be a part of the story. Can you say something about how you made that decision? That's such an important part of the editorial process. Like how did you make decisions about what was in and what was out? Um, I, I think first and foremost, this is my life. It's not a story. And I was just really blessed that um, the people I work with at this youth radio were really able to understand that. And, you know, this is my legacy. So I, I don't have parents. So I always try to advocate for myself to make sure that I'm doing the best that I can and I'm being represented the best that I can. And nobody can represent me better than myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, so is there anything that didn't become a part of the public piece in the story? Yeah, um, I think one of the biggest pieces were from actually one of uh, the person I look up to most would be Kendrick Lamar. And um, one of my favorite albums is uh, Good Kid, Mad City. I can relate to that so much. Um, and there is two versions of the album, one with the van and another one with his family. and that picture is so powerful because there's so many messages and one of them where you know you have his whole family and the eyes are blacked out and there was a piece that i was working with and i brought in some pictures of my family and like i said there's not a lot of or there aren't any pictures of my family together so i had a a compilation of some pictures that i really wanted to put out with the uh the black lines going through the mm. eyes, but we ended up not um, doing that just mm. for the sake of identity for my family. Mm. So we're going to do another behind the scenes piece, right? So you've heard the finished story. This is another clip that um, you guys got before you went into the courtroom, right? Or maybe Correct. even the day before? Yeah. So let me set this one up for you guys as well. This is basically day before court. It's me and my producer, Brett, uh, and we're in the studio. And I think this is my favorite clip because we're just establishing 
What's most important to capture in this story? Um, if I were to cap an emotion on how I'm feeling, I would say it's as on the same level as a big life experience. And it kind of feels like I'm going through a divorce. You know, I may not have been married at all, but I feel like people who are divorced can understand what it means, what I'm going through right now, just in a sense where, you know, I am losing this relationship and I am getting cut off from this um, lifestyle and resource. But it also feels really like, um, it feels really liberating. So that's so interesting. Because, so, because you mentioned this idea of a divorce, mm -hmm. um, like it feeling like a divorce. Um, and that's like a line in the actual script. Is that how you came up? Had you always been thinking about it that way? Or was that the conversation where you kind of got the idea and then that became part of what you wrote? Um, first things first, we were in the studio for an hour. And for some producers, that's not really easy to do to like find that extra time. Mm -hmm. And I think this was also my favorite clip and my favorite moment with the story because it's a, f it's a different feeling when they're asking, you know, or, you know, you're doing good, but this was flipped and my producer was asking me, how are you feeling? And it was such a simple question. And I really took that opportunity to actually be real and say, I really feel like I'm going through a divorce. Like, I'm really happy that I'm being able to share my feelings and whatnot. But for me, this was a, a real pivotal moment because my story could have gotten screwed up. Like I could have been with the producer, any producer in this room, and it could have been framed as a success story, but mm -hmm. that's not what I wanted. I really wanted to get the message across that I may have survived, but I'm not okay. And as we have well a clip on that. We actually do have a clip Should on we that. Listen? Let's just play, let's just play <laughs> that actually. I wanna communicate to them that, you know, I'm not okay. Um, I, I survived and I lived and I became a lot enlightened with my personal life and with my, my, um, my morals and all of that. But I just want them to know that, that I'm not okay. So this, this really surprises me because it really surprised me when I heard you say being not okay is the most important thing that you wanted to get across in the story because um, certainly where we work, so often the assumption is the idea is to put forth people, the strength or resilience within people in their stories and in their lives, and you're kind of flipping that on its head. Um, so, and you were starting to talk about this before, so mm -hmm. say more about like why that was the message. I wanted to convey a different message because I feel like in foster care, I've always been this poster child, and I never really got to be a poster child of what I wanted to represent. And so I just thought, you know, if I make this idea uh, happen, if I make it actually work, that would be amazing. And so I decided to be a reverse poster child, and I wanted to make it clear that, you know, it's important that we hold these public figures or these judges, this government, uh, accountable and actually doing what they say they're going to do. So that's where it's like not just telling your story, but this journalistic obligation to get people, you know, hold people accountable. Yeah, and for me, it was, it was bigger than me. It was mm -hmm. supposed to be for 
my siblings because none of us actually got adopted but most of us were in foster care so that was a big red flag for me and I think what's so beautiful about this piece is that I actually have so many messages in there for the listeners uh, everybody gets that message of the signal or of the signal of distress kind of showing that mm -hmm. you know this is what's happening and then from the letter I got that message for for my lawyer, my mm -hmm. social workers, and the judges, and I think that it still sticks with them to today. Yeah, I'm sure it does. So um, what we thought we would do just structure-wise is we, we were going to open up for just like five minutes because um, we're going to close out um, at least our formal engagement with Noelle's story, and then we're going to transition to the second story. But we wanted to give folks just at least a little bit of time in case there's a burning question for Noelle um, about what's been discussed so far. And then, but I'm just gonna cut this off in five minutes so that we make sure we have time for the next story. And then we're gonna, we're leaving like 15 minutes for big conversation, but go ahead. That's all. Hi. Um, so we talked a lot about the process of actually making a story, but I don't think we've really touched on what actually brought you into the room to actually tell that story and the steps that that took. And um, so I'm curious about, you know, what got you into the studio in the first place? Sure. Um, it sounds like you're asking how did I come up with the idea to really put this story into play and I would say it was just it was my legacy. I was really trying to figure out what station or what media outlet could I really go to that I can genuinely trust and I, I love a lot of media outlets but I had actually found out through foster care uh, this organization, Youth Radio, and I thought it has youth in it. I should check it out. <laughs> I'm just being so honest. It had youth in it. I'll check it out. And I really liked the environment and the atmosphere and f the difference between Youth Radio and like a, a foster care agency is they don't give you that power to go to the boss. And I hate that. And Youth Radio is like, the door's wide open, and so I just saw opportunity to uh, to do it, and um, when we were having our meetings, I just thought, I'm not going to share, I'm just going to go to the boss, because I want to get that answer versus just keeping talking about it, and um, the story actually was really, really last minute. Um, like I said, it was, we did it in four days, but we were supposed to have it, uh, the permission to record in five days. And so I was literally my last few moments to really do something about it, go big or go home. And I could just say briefly also, I don't know if you're interested in pathways to be a part of the newsroom. You know, there, just so you know, there is like six, there's a six month process before somebody gets to the point where you were at Noel when you came in with a story idea. Mm -hmm where people are learning all about storytelling, you know, and then, um, and then once they're in the newsroom, that's the point at which they're starting to pitch stories and work with producers and editors to get them out. So I want to know, because Noelle, you're saying I, it's not a success story, um, you wanted everyone to know that you're not okay. I want to know what the focus, like what the message that you wanted to share with the world was? Was it the failings of the system or that you're one of hundreds of thousands of foster um, children in America? Like, I wanna know what you wanted people to learn from your story. I think there's a lot of things that I wanted 
people to learn. Um, I think the main one for me was the uh, adoption piece. Uh, there's just so many people that avoid it or that kind of just give up midway. And I just wanted to convey that message that we're not expendable like that. You can't just treat us like that. Little kids aren't currency. Um, child poverty is a huge thing. And I was just like, I've always been flabbergasted by the fact that our government really like makes it so hard to adopt a, a child out here. And I feel like they put up this front where we're an organization, we have foster kids here, but we want to get them um, reunited with their family or adopted. But it's totally different behind the scenes. It's not that at all. And I just thought it's ridiculous that somebody has to go to a different country to adopt versus just being inside. Mm. But I also wanted to get the fact that I'm not okay. And I felt like the fact that I gave the courage to not make it a success story and just be really real that I'm not okay, that a lot of other um, foster youth were really able to connect to that. And I think individuals as well. I remember a comment um, a, a lady had said about the piece and I had responded with my own personal profile because everybody at Youth Radio kind of thought like it ethical and logically um, I should be the one doing that instead of some youth radio handle. And she just like gave me this imagery of her driveway moment that she had with my story. And I just thought that that was really amazing that somebody who isn't a foster kid has that driveway moment because I know a lot of uh, former current foster youth had that too. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, oh, hi, Ike. Um, and just a quick note also that we're actually only playing one piece of the package. So yeah. there's this NPR story you did, an essay for the New York Times. We did our interactive team built this. Teresa actually led the development of this explainer that you could click through and sort of follow different pathways through foster care. So there's Check like a, out. yeah, a, a body of work. It's golden. Yeah. Ike, do you, Ike, do you want to do one? And then we're going to transition, but... Just for this little period, and then there's going to be more, but yeah. <laughs> Ike used to work at Youth Radio and made really beautiful stories with us, so. Um, thanks, for, thanks for sharing. Uh, I have a Noelle question. Uh, I'm wondering if you are interested in telling other people's stories about their experience in foster care and how this experience has informed that or how you would do it different as somebody who's told a story about a personal story? Um. I have an Ike answer. Um, <laughs> it's actually really, I'm really happy that you asked that. And my answer to that would be yes, 1,000 million percent. I would love to tell other stories for foster youth, and I want to actually pioneer a podcast with that. But I'm also really trying to go to the next level and do reporting from how hard it is, from the perspective of how hard it is to even pass a bill in foster care. Mm -hmm. And I wanna report on that. Mm -hmm. so I just think it's so powerful, the fact that I was able to go into a government building and record it, that if I have these government workers that are actually uh, current foster youth, then I recommend that everybody check out uh, California Youth Connection where they actually work uh, government and policies with uh, getting bills passed and so I want to I definitely want to do uh, content like that 
So I know there's so much more to say, and we are building in time for that, but I just want to make sure um, Teresa can share another story. Um, why don't you go ahead and take it from here? Sure. Um, and thanks, Noelle, for sharing. I'm a big fan of your story. Um, and so transitioning to a different kind of role, like Noelle, you're telling your own story and reporting on it with a team. Um, I'm at Youth Radio, I'm in the role of where I'm reporting with other people who are trying to tell their stories. So slightly different situation. And I want to focus on um, one story that I helped to produce, which is a commentary. And as most of us know, a commentary is usually like a first person audio piece where you don't think of anyone really being in it besides like the person who is talking. And we actually had a team of three people <laughs> produce one person's commentary. Um, which you'll see in a second. Um, I just want to introduce Vern Davina Hines. He goes by V, um, and it, he's the person whose voice you're about to hear. Who's it's his narrative we're going to focus on. Um, and then Desmond Megley is um, another young illustrator that I work with at Youth Radio. I'm, I help lead our design team. So, me, comparatively old lady with two young people working to tell one story. And that story um, had to do with homelessness. So this was a while back. Um, some of you may remember that um, based on a New York Times article, San Francisco did um, a big push around homelessness, the SF Homelessness Project, where 70 news organizations signed on to all cover homelessness on one day, like a big media news blitz. So in editorial, Youth Radio is like, yeah, we'll do a story on homelessness. Anyone ever had this experience where you just decide you're gonna do a story on something without talking to anyone? So we did that. And, you know, we, t we have young people. I n knew since I work closely with young people, we had young people who had experienced and were experiencing homelessness. But I already had a story in my head of what we would do. I'm like, commentary check. We'll do one of those. We'll do an infographic, because we do those, about how many homeless young people there are. Great. We'll produce these two pieces of content for this push. Um, and I had known V. Um, we'd worked together a little bit less intensely as Noel has worked with our newsroom and he had shared publicly kind of with folks that he had been homeless at 13. Um, so I sat down with uh, V in the studio, um, similar, I think this is a great practice, sit in the studio and record your like background or your initial interview. I think most of us do that or um, know that's good practice. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about how I, the story that you're about to hear is really different than the story I thought we were going to do. Um, the first piece of audio that we're going to play is um, the, the commentary, which was the piece that we signed on to deliver. This aired on KQED, which is the San Francisco NPR affiliate. Um, it's a two-minute commentary. We'll just listen to the whole thing. I was 13 years old the night I became homeless. I was fighting with my family. That happened a lot. And my mom finally told me to get out. I could tell she was serious this time. So I did. I just grabbed my social security card and my birth certificate and I folded it in my wallet and I headed to the railroad tracks. The first night I spent outside, it was raining. I leaned against a broken down truck with no doors. It was like a little music video in my head. I was so depressed. I remember thinking to myself, why is my life like this when I'm so young? Later, when I talked to my friends about it, they were like, why didn't you hit me up? But I didn't want to feel like I was in the way. That's what my family put on me. I always felt like I was in the way all the time. As a teen, I hid my homelessness from most people. Talking to a school counselor, I'd tell them something like, you know, everything at home is going good. I'd just make something up because I wasn't sure what would happen. Maybe they'd bring in Child Protective Services, or they'd try to take me and put me in foster care, or take me out of my hometown where all my friends lived. I was afraid of that. 
so I didn't tell anybody. For a few years, I moved around a lot, staying on couches, in shelters, or outside, being nomadic. Eventually, I got old enough to start working, save up money, and get myself off the streets. Now I'm 20 years old. I have a stable place to live, and I recently got my GED. When I tell my old friends and coworkers and teachers that I was homeless, they're always so surprised. They'd say, oh, but you were so well-kept, or I couldn't tell looking at you. That was the point, though. So many homeless teens don't want anyone to know. Not because we don't need help, but because we have too much to lose. With the perspective, I'm Vrindavana Hines. And I really wish V could be here to kind of, you could ask him questions, but that's his commentary. So, I mean, I think a lot of us recognize this format, right? Two-minute commentary, it's got that public radio read, you know what I mean? It sounds like him, but it's that format. Um, it's clearly, it's scripted, right? Um, but where this came from was um, in that initial studio session, the commentary I had pitched, what we were going to do, was about how he had developed an app for where teens could find places to live that night, and it was a tech story. And so I had all these questions written up, um, like, tell me about your app idea, like, and how did you go about doing that? And as soon as V started, we do, you asked like the background story, like, tell me about your story. And it became really clear that I had the wrong idea in my head. Like that was not the right story. And you have that moment in this version of the commentary where he says like, that was the point though. That came from when I was like, so it sounds like the point of what you're saying is that kids hide homelessness, but that's part of why they are so vulnerable. And um, I think it's so important to not screw up someone's story to have that check-in moment of like, oh, I'm not in control. You're the one who's in control of that editorial process. Um, so I'm going to play a little bit of behind the scenes, but it's sort of wrapped up in a different media product. Um, I'm a digital producer. I'm, I make audio look good, or more accurately, I try not to screw up both audio stories and visual stories. And um, we're going to hear some of V's raw audio, which you're going to hear. It's, it's similar in many ways to the commentary that you heard from public radio. His story, when it came out, was so visual. It was really like painting a picture, just the way that he was a storyteller. And it made me think that the two-minute commentary was not big enough to hold the real story. And maybe we should expand, because we had these youth um, illustrators, to try to make something bigger and more visual with this product. So I asked V in studio, hey, it sounds like this could be something we do like as a graphic novel style, or you're into that. And he's like, yeah, I don't draw, but yeah. And so I, I pulled in another person to the team of telling V's story, which was um, Desmond Megley. And um, we sat down and we listened to this hour-long raw audio interview, and we sat down together and we picked out little sample snippets of audio and said, what's the visual that would go with this? With some kind of hard ground rules, like we didn't want to add things to the story that weren't there because then you're hijacking it in some way. Um, the style became very kind of magical realism, like the panel with like the Christmas hat right here. There's something true to the story about a kid turning 14 on the railroad tracks on their birthday, it's Christmas. That you can pull at their reality without having it to make it look exactly like that moment, like a photograph. Um, and I will say that these are editorial risks that V was involved in making those calls. And that's something that I think was really important in not screwing up the story is that 
we were able to check in and say, hey, what do you think of the storyboard? Oh, actually, the railroad tracks look different. Actually, these trees look different. Um, and we produced this product for Instagram as, um, this is before galleries were a thing, but it was you know, a 12 panel um, where I took, went back to the raw studio interview, which how many of us have had raw interview tape that's like so good and we don't have room for it all. And I ran the raw interview underneath each panel so that you got a little bit of what I think is him telling it for the first time. Um, and I should say one thing about him telling it for the first time that is important for what you're about to hear. When V showed up to that initial studio interview, um, he didn't show up alone. He showed up with his girlfriend. And you know, like some people you can tell from their body language, like they were just like very close. And um, I don't usually do this, but I, I was heading to the studio with V and I said like, well, do you wanna take her into the studio with you? Um, how many times do we tell people like, hey, tell your story as if you're talking to a trusted friend? Well, he had a trusted friend. And so, you know, it's, vul it's a very like intense personal story, but I kind of was like, are you okay with this? And he was so excited at the idea of doing this. I sat them across from each other. So he's hearing my voice in his head, but in his ear, but he's looking at somebody who he's telling his story with for the very first time. Um, and so now let's kind of, I strung together the Instagram panels into one video. This is all original raw audio, and I should say the music you're gonna hear was written and produced by V himself. So when I was 13 years old, I was just kind of having some problems with my family. Uh, we weren't getting along too good. And um, the first night I left home, I was pretty much just told to get out of my house. I remember fighting with my sister. I'm the only one in the family who has a black father. And everyone in my family was like, call me the N-word, or call me other horrible things. So I felt like, even if they didn't mean it, just saying that was making me feel like I wasn't a part of the family. Uh, it was right before my birthday, which is Christmas Day. Because I remember for my 14th birthday, on Christmas, I spent it on the railroad tracks. And at that time, I already been outside for a while, for like maybe a few months. And uh, I just remember crying at the railroad tracks. Uh, for the longest time when I was homeless, I would steal loaves of bread from Safeway. I would uh, take like peanut butter, uh, peanut butter and jelly stuff, um, trail mixes and whatever. And I wouldn't steal from a local store. But I don't feel like some big organization like Safeway is gonna be mad that some little teenager stole from the store to feed themselves. I was always, I was always pretty well kept, maintained myself. <laughs> I mean, for the longest time, I'd wake up and I'd go to like Rayleigh's, which is like a little uh, grocery store in Ukiah, and I'd go in their bathroom and I'd, I'd, I'd shave, um, I'd steal a toothbrush, a little packet kit, and some some toothpaste, and I'd brush my teeth, and, and if I had to, I'd just like sink clean, like I'd just get like paper towels and stuff, and like wash myself off if I couldn't take a shower like you know it was, it was difficult then I I did try to hide it from people you know if I was talking to a school counselor especially I'd tell them uh, everything at home's going good you know and just make up stuff just because I didn't want to I wasn't sure what would happen I was a little afraid of that like maybe they'll bring in like a CPS worker and try to put me on foster care or try to take me out of the, this town you know where all my friends are and uh, I was a little freaked out at that point, so I, I didn't tell anyone. I knew I could have hit up some friends and gone sit over there, and you know, I talked to them afterwards, and they were like, why didn't you hit me up? You know, They were confused why I, I didn't reach out to them, and I guess after the whole fight, 
and and feeling like I didn't belong in my own family, uh, I just kind of wanted to be alone for a while, you know. So I just I just stayed outside because then I didn't want to burden anyone with that, like having them think oh, like, oh, I need help, help me out. Like I just wanted to feel like independent, you know. I wanted to not ask anyone for anything. Like I can do this on my own. I was pretty much just going to high school because I didn't want to give up on myself. It's kind of like a self goal, but. At the time, like I really couldn't focus, and even during like while I was in classes, I had so much in my mind that sit there, and I couldn't think like, why am I doing this paperwork right now? Like, why does it matter? You know, and I just remember thinking like, why is my life like this when I'm so young? You know. Um. So we just thought really quickly we'd have like the very beginning of a what I hope is a deeper discussion, we continue in um, our questions. But for this talk, like I've been kind of wearing the producer hat, and Noel, who I should say, you do help produce other folks' work as a peer teacher. I am on both sides of the fence. Yeah, and, but like I think that, you know, you've, we've been in really different roles, and doing collaborative work like this is harder. Like, let's be real. Like, using someone purely as a source is like way easier <laughs> than being like, and I think there's a question of why didn't why doesn't don't people just take their stories directly to the outlet and bypass the producer role? Why don't producers just like use people as sources instead of involving them? Um, and I know we were talking a little bit about this, but why do you why do you think that this relationship is worth the pain? I would say, just like the industry, it's always mutating. Like radio is getting less popular and podcasting is getting bigger, um, but I would say we, we need each other because I could have just easily brought a little camcorder and a camera myself and recorded it, but I had to think from a bigger perspective, like, this is a big story. How could I get it out and reach the demographics that I want to get out? And so that made me think, you know, I actually do need somebody to back me up on this, even though it's my story and I'm mainly doing the reporting and producing and getting feedback and whatnot you know it just showed me that yes it's hard but with a little empathy it could be a lot easier and less painful yeah i think it's interesting to bring up empathy because when i was doing old school reporting like before i came to youth radio i actually felt very antagonistic sometimes toward my sources where i'm like just tell me the story and then i can tell the truth and i will like and you know your source might be pissed about something, but there's like a little horrible part of you where like, ooh, that was really good tape or something. And I, I think that to think of a person not as a source, but as their life is much harder emotional burden. Um, is that a reason that you think that you wanted to tell your story because of the trust that people wouldn't screw it up? I think it was partially part of the trust, but I also think it's because you have to make a sacrifice when you give empathy you're also giving your time and i think that's where it can get muddy you can do a story and do it by the deadline and then you have a complete story mm -hmm. but when you actually take the time like my producer brett did and like youth radio did as well you kind of get this this magic that happens and um just for a quick little fact my story was in November, or it was made in November, but it didn't get finished and aired till like January, like two or three months later. So, you know, that is a clear indication of like why we need each other and why empathy is so important. Um, so we're gonna just bang through a couple of 
takeaways um, when we think about the two stories, the production process behind these two, and just the body of work um, that we hope could help um, seed conversation. Um, so number one, I think this is really clear, is keeping the storyteller involved every step along the way. You know, Teresa talked about V essentially fact-checking the visuals on his story for accuracy, um, or like, you know, going through every edit, both internally and then with, in our case, external editors like from NPR or from the New York Times. Um, just the, um, that young person, in our case, um, being a part of that process every step along the way and really being clear from the beginning who has final editorial say. Um, in our shop, young people have final editorial say, so nothing is gonna go out. There's no point at which it's like, there's a pass off and then there's a process that they're cut out of and then they hear it on the air. Not to say that editors don't make choices and you know help shape that finished product, um, but again, um, we kind of have that ground rule. So I think it's, we all think it's really important to just be clear about what that guideline is gonna be for you. Get out of the way of the real stories. Everybody knows that so often it's not what you think it is. I'm really happy, even though I work in the app lab at Youth Radio, that Teresa didn't end up telling a story about a homeless app and instead um, told, you know, worked with V on his story. Um, know, as we said, that it's not always going to be comfortable. I mean, there's, I'm coming back to fact checking, I think we all remember the moment when, you know, when you had to like splay out all these like super personal documents in this public space where we were all pouring through and double checking everything and triple checking everything in the story. I mean, that's strange when you've been a creative collaborator and now all of a sudden your story is being subjected to that level of scrutiny. But again, knowing that that's all a part of backing somebody up so that once it goes out into the world, um, you have a whole community behind you. Um, and then the last piece related to that is pacing yourself for the long haul. You guys talked about this in terms of the investment of time even after broadcast. There's also this, you know, we talk about the phenomenon of digital afterlife where we've spent most of this discussion talking about the work that goes into making the story, but there's, an, there's a whole second life to the story, as you all know, once it gets into the hands of the audience or the people formerly known as audience who really can kind of co-produce that next phase. And um, so as a final comment before we open it up, Noelle, your story had probably one of the biggest and most intense digital afterlives of any in our recent um, history. So maybe, and you already referenced this, like kind of getting into the comments, say something about what it's been like to navigate um, the digital afterlife of your story. Sure, and I think it's funny because we're in Chicago and there's a bull, but I literally took the bull by the horns on this one, <laughs> and I just, I remember when I got the the news after the story was posted, my phone was hot, and it was just hot with notifications, and uh, people from all over the country were messaging me, and they were wanting to fund me, they were wanting to adopt me, and they just wanted to really help set my foundation for my career as an advocate and a reformer of foster care as well as a journalist. And um, like, like I said earlier, um, after the story came out, we do a lot of engagement for the digital afterlife because it's just as important as the post-production, pre-production, however you want to uh, frame it. And we just decided as a collective, why don't 
why don't I do it from my profile versus a youth radio profile? Because we wanted to still keep that genuine feeling. And so we just thought we're not going to stop now. <clears throat> and also for part of the digital afterlife, my biggest personal thing was um, I was a little, I was homeless as well. When I was 18, I decided to leave my foster home, love them, but I needed a new scene. I needed a new environment. I needed something that was less toxic. And um, I was couch surfing with my chosen family and um, they were always iffy about foster care because they felt really um, isolated from that part. And I think the two biggest things were that I lost my chosen family because they did not want me to speak about this, but you know, this is my passion. But on the flip side, I actually got to meet my younger siblings that I didn't even know existed. Um, after the story got posted, um, my dad's side of the family, whom I've never met, I never met my dad, I met my mom when I was 14. Um, they just Google searched my name real quick and the story popped up and um, I just remember when I met my little brother, he was basically telling me that um, his mom found us and they've always been curious about us, but there's been forces that just keep them away to not discover us. And I felt like this was, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to cry, but this was like the most powerful thing that came from the story, just the power of words and actually getting that chance of the, the great things that can happen from that. And I actually learned that I have two younger brothers and a little sister and I'm so blessed to be able to finally meet my family. So you said that you um, could have done this on your own with just a camcorder, but you wanted to reach a, a bigger audience or a different audience. Who, who did you want to reach? Who did I want to reach? I think I wanted to reach everybody because we're all, I mean we're all humans and we're all a part of some type of system and my big thing is uh, like the lady that asked over there what did I want to get from the story I wanted to just hold everybody accountable I wanted to get the support for social workers and case managers because it's it's unfair first of all how they get treated and um, my big thing was parents learn um, kids learn from what their parents display and we have no guidance and so I just thought if I put this message out and just have everybody be inspired to do more good we can get some legit role models for these individuals you know I'm out of foster care I'm not a foster kid anymore but now I'm I have the same um, responsibility that you do sir to make sure that we help the youth thrive because they are the future Yes. Um, I had a question for, I mean, both of the stories. Were there ever any points where there was like a creative difference between the producer and, you know, the creator of the story? Yes. <laughs> and how did you resolve those? How did you navigate that? Uh, well, I had a three-person team, so I actually, we had disagreements within like the triad, and actually it was mostly the, the illustrator, who was also a young person, that we had some back and forth. I... I throw myself under the bus, but I often find that young people are smarter than me and have better instincts on things like their own story. Um, I, I said I'd propose an infographic. I had done this whole storyboard where I'm like, the theme, Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home, 
right? And they were all like, no, this is horrible. Um, and, you know, just stuff like that where I, it's not a bad decision. It just wasn't right for what the illustrator's version was. It didn't fit V's story. And then um, with V, uh, there weren't a lot, it wasn't a lot of conflicts. I think we did invest so much time in the beginning. But um, we, I had some push and pull with, um, you might have seen there's like a cardboard background to that, which is something I added when, when I was doing like my post like design stuff. And I was like, oh, is this too much? Like I'm kind of like creeped out by this. I probably should pull it and just put it on like a white background. And V was like, no, you need to keep that. Like that, I like it a lot. It resonates with me and my story. Um, and I felt like he got to make that call. And I can tell you afterwards of many more times that we've had conflicts. And to Lissa's point, or what you pointed out, Lissa, you have to have a system where you know who gets to have the final say, even if you flag stuff as an adult person of like, do you really want to do that? Or are you sure you want to take that direction? Um, and that is really nice to have so that I don't have to agonize too much over why we make the decisions we make. And actually, on that point, just very briefly, um, I said young people always have final editorial say, but Teresa pointed out to me, there is a case where they don't, and that is when they really want to share something that we as the newsroom, and there's a whole set of supports for them beyond the newsroom, um, feel like they need uh, to protect themselves. I mean, to create some uh, deniability or some buffer between that narrative and how it's going to follow them for the rest of their lives. So there are moments when a young person who's 15 years old and says, I absolutely want to tell this story of the fact that I'm on the spectrum, or I want to talk about this story of surviving abuse. And we, in that case, will sometimes intervene and, and make decisions with them about anonymity or about um, telling a different story for now um, with that digital afterlife in mind. And I don't think my story had any creative differences. I think I was what mainly do you think, the Brett? driver. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I would say was, was the pictures. That was the only creative difference that I could genuinely think of was the pictures. <laughs> Hi, guys. Great talk. I'm very curious about what the path forward looks for alums of this program. And Noel, I'm really curious about what the path looks forward uh, for you, because uh, this is monumentally important. This is a way of getting more diverse voices into radio. This is a way of getting the best possible stories. This is an amazing story into uh, other people's hands into the national um, show's hands. So I am really curious for the people on the ends, but also uh, to hear Noelle's um, side of it, how you guys support uh, people who want to go into radio or, or like want to make their next steps in radio beyond this. I actually am not an alum yet, so I was hoping that uh, one sure. of you two could talk about the process of alums. <laughs> but for You're me, like, what's in my, what's gonna happen? <laughs> what are you doing? But for me, um, for what's to come for me, I think that I first and foremost I made history with this. It's never been done. Uh, there's never been a foster kid to stand in front of the court like David and Goliath and just really not take down my enemy, but just stand face to face with my maker and um, really just express myself. And I think what's come forward for me is, you know, 
I'm here for good. I'm going to be always an investigative journalist, whether I'm a reporter, producer, editor, whatever, maybe all of it, probably all of it. Um, and I'm also always going to be working, doing policy work and reform and foster care. So my goal is to bridge those two together, effective storytelling to change government. Yeah, I think that uh, there are a couple things. I think what you brought up is really important, which is like it can't just be one good story. It has to be like, how do we change journalism and radio and audio so that people become the the makers of the story look a lot more like the diversity that's out there um, in experience and in other ways. I think that um, one way is to, by not treating people like a source, is really pivoting from saying you are a you are a maker of media. Like you're not a consumer, you're a maker of media. And if you can do this, you can keep on doing more stories. You know, we have the capacity in our program or our, our organization where people don't do one-off stories, they continue to do work and they build a portfolio, which is power. Um, but I think the next step of what could happen like beyond my personal control is more media organizations need to become friendly to folks who come from diverse backgrounds and be open to those experiences because I have young, so many young people who succeed in the stories they tell, and I want places for them to go to continue to do that. And we keep on providing the talent. All of us can cultivate these voices, but we need to also stand up and speak out for people who are trying to make it, who come from these diverse backgrounds and these vulnerable populations. And I would just add, there's a, like, if you ever come to Oakland and want to visit Youth Radio, so we all work, and there are others here in the room, with us who work on the second floor, that's our production company where the news and the content is created. But there's a whole building all around us that sort of metaphorically represents all the other support systems for young people there. There's a there's a health team, there's a college and career team, there's, you know, all that stuff's going on. And that is important in terms of um, the digital afterlife of the story has to have value for the young person who told it beyond that 15 minutes and also the supports required to navigate that. So, um, yeah, thinking about as you do, if you are inspired to bring young people into your process, just think about where are those other supports, where you can access those other supports for them. I come from a member station with a lot of resources, but when I pitch things like this, I feel like there's a lot of fear and resistance because you are giving someone else editorial control. It's gonna be expensive because it takes a lot of time. and You're not gonna get your daily beat reporting in. What strategies do you have for people like me going to editors and being like, mm -hmm. this needs to happen? Can I jump in really quick? I think if you're trying to break that barrier, one thing you can do is avoid um, like really hard news peg stories. At first, go evergreen because then you can have the production time to work with people, and it's less like, oh, that would have been nice two weeks ago, but you didn't have it at the time. Um, if you are trying to break into that too, you can start with smaller products. Like a commentary is something that people are used to hearing in someone's first-person voice, but if you make something it brings a fresh perspective or something powerful. You can make the argument like, hey, what if that is expanded into a feature, a podcast or something? Um, but I mean, that's a real, I wanna acknowledge that's a real problem when you're trying to like convince people who don't get it. Um, and I hope that the work continues to change that. Okay, uh, this is a question for both stories. You guys are telling like a picture of a really important moment of someone's life, but uh, how do you frame where is the starting point of the story and where's the end? Because 
And the homeless case, it's like his whole life resumed on those pictures. But uh, I think in Noel's case, it's just an event of a really long story. So how do you guys frame that in, in just one meaningful moment? I would say for my story, I purposely did that just because there's just, foster care is such a complex system. There really, I don't think there's an end or a start to it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's something that's just always going to be around forever, mm -hmm. just like homelessness. And so I really wanted to frame it in a way where if I want to expand off of that, which a lot of people really wanted to hear, like the New York Times story about college was an expansion of what I was talking about wanting to finish college. And so for for my story, I don't think there really is a start and an end to it, but for V's story, it might be a little different. Yeah, um, and I want to, I think you bring up a really important point, which is that human stories are lives. They don't have this like beginning end sort of clear cut point. Um, but the narrative arc, for me, I always like starting with um, a moment, like asking people for a really important moment, whether it was the very first moment or near the middle or the end. And then you can build around that because then you're not saying like, it all started when. It was like, I remember the day I was kicked out of my house. Well, obviously there are factors leading up to that moment and there are consequences from that moment, but we all relate to moments in our lives. And then in terms of endings, I think it's tough to have an ending to say like, and then this is the end of my story, because that's not how life works. But you can, I think of especially like stories that are told, people's own stories, that take, the ending might be a takeaway of what they want people to get from their story. Like Noel, yours, like, this is not okay, I am not okay. And V's, by the way, V is fine. V, I talked to him right before he came out here. He has a job and he has a place to live. And um, in the commentary, you kind of have more of that where it's like, and now V has a place to live. And it feels like the end. But in the Instagram version, which is the one he had much more like of a hand in, uh, he really wanted to end with the question of like, why, why is this happening to young people? It's like not right. It's not fair. And there's something that we should do about it. So there's a very close consciousness of the takeaway being for this listener who may not be a part of the community that's being reported on. And I do want to acknowledge we had this long conversation. Like another reason to do this is because like, I mean, privilege is a big word in the room that we have not said. And the assumptions that go into stories and the takeaway from stories are profoundly affected by that. And it's something that is another big factor in this editorial and narrative arc that I think we can all have a whole nother session about that. Most definitely. So I think that the work that you do at Youth Radio is so admirable and I kind of wish that I could be doing the same kind of model. But for those of us that, and this is sort of going off of the, the, like the member station question, for those of us that are in more, you know, traditional forms of reporting or working for more traditional organizations where that model isn't an option, um, you, you can't give the source final editorial say, do you have suggestions for still making sure that we are telling, and I know that I think you kind of got to this in some of the talks, but if there's any other suggestions for how to make sure that you are, you know, honoring their story and getting it right? Well, I mean, I, I think one that we saw in the making of both of these stories was that moment, Teresa, when you said, when you got to this, well, this is the point of it, um, or the moment when you and Brett were in the studio, and I think, you know, Brett asked a question like, well, w what's the most important thing that you want to make sure comes out of this? And then just circling back to that, 
because as much as we talk about get out of the way for the real story and there's going to be pivots and that's what makes great content or great stories, um, but there is that um, there is that vision that in our case the young person needs to hold and we need to support and that's I think that's something that would carry over even outside of a youth driven environment like ours where you establish what that value is and circle back to it as your kind of guideline even as the story evolves. I could even add something to that. I can't, I know I can't emphasize on that empathy though. Mm. You know, you, you talk about um, the final say and I think when you add in that, that element of empathy, it turns into, you know, what's my final say gonna be as a producer to what's our final say, you know, what are we going to say from this? And I think that's really powerful too, where it's like, it, f it almost feels like everybody's the editor and the producer, mm. and that's really powerful, especially coming from somebody who's like a source or a reporter. Mm. Thank you again. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sophie. Thank you so much, Noel, and you guys. This beautiful and powerful story. Um, my question is just to kind of zoom out on youth radio a little bit and give us a sense of, you know, you're 14, 15, maybe younger, maybe older, and you're interested in, you hear about youth radio, you're interested, you show up. Like, what is the process in your organization to being at this point where Noel is producing an NPR story and a New York Times story and has... And also, Noel, how long have you been involved with Youth Radio? First question's for y'all, but I've been, <laughs> I've been involved for Youth Radio for roughly three years, two years. I can handle just a little bit. So I think it's a really important question because mm -hmm. it's not like some people think like young people walk in our doors and they're like, NPR, please. And they're like, OK, here's your story. <laughs> it like, doesn't work that way. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's six months of training that everybody goes through, whether they enter in as a high schooler or sometimes as an older young person too, or a college student. Um, the training is important, and I think this was one of the um, provocations, like to invest in a community that does not always get covered, like young people, people of color, underserved folks, folks in certain communities. You need to invest. And the six months of training gets people thinking of themselves not just as media consumers, but media makers. So there's a lot of media literacy and fun skills and stuff in there. But it's also a huge trust building time. Like, I didn't meet Noel until you came into the, like, the newsroom, but yep. you had been working with people showing that we care, like at Youth Radio, and same with all the people whose voices or stories you see. And I think that's tough. Sometimes we don't have that luxury of like a six month training house that we're just like, hey, you trust me, great. But there are ways to connect with people who are building trust in communities or, to, or just to think about the trust building is part of the story production. Mm. Um, and so I'm really glad you asked that question because it takes a lot behind the scenes. So Noelle, I was curious, we were talking about um, story takers versus storytellers and, and how easy it is to screw up somebody else's story. If over the years you heard um, radio pieces or read pieces about the foster care system that were done by you know traditional journalists and and what your reactions were to those stories you know what you might have thought was um, missing or, or, or off-key or anything like that I, I definitely have heard other stories on foster care and I think the biggest thing that's missing is the youth's voice um, 
if I'm being really frank, it's the youth voice or just that colorful storytelling. Um, I remember like my first story was on KQED and I was on Scott Schaefer's morning show and I remember like I would get some calls in and uh, I think what ultimately drived me to also telling uh, the story was just some of the questions that people had called in and asked and how much it like bridged and like bridged the other stories that uh, young folks tell and uh, I felt like I can use those elements to really uh, get a story going. Can I just say something quick on that? Because I, I helped to fact check Noelle's story. So yes. I was like super creeping on your story, which speaking of leaning into like, it's not always comfortable. Like it can be really awkward. I remember that show because I listened to it in the fact checking. And I think there was a caller who was like calling and saying like, there's, some, there's a home down the street with all these kids with their saggy pants. Like I'm scared of them. Like how can I get them to go away? And I think it was you were like, they're not scary. Like these are kids in foster care. Like you really grounded them. Yeah. And I just, I just remember like, this is before I knew you, and I was like, damn. Like, if you didn't have, weren't there to represent? Like, who the heck would have? What would people have said to that question? Yeah, and that's in my backyard. That's in Berkeley. So mm. it's really shocking that we get those types of responses. Mm. You mentioned the best practice of developing stories in a studio and recording that. Um, what are some other methods that we could take back as facilitators to our shops that don't have as many resources as y'all? One issue that pops up a lot, this, and the studio space helps with this, but is good if you don't have a studio space, is Noel, you are great because you walked in and you're like, I have a story and it matters. But a lot, oftentimes we're having to convince people that they A, have a story, and B, that their story is something that matters. Because maybe they've never heard anyone say to them that their story is important, that people should listen to it. Um, there's an exercise, and these are on, Youth Radio has a whole curriculum project thing, which I think is important for this kind of stuff. Um, there's an exercise I like to do with people who've never told stories where I ask them to answer the questions in their, like, based on their experience, I know, dot, 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 I care about, and I wish people understood that. And everybody has answers to this based on their own lived experience, and you can go and see what people write, it's great in a group setting, and point to it and say, like, tell me more about that. And then keep on saying that, and what you find really fast is that people have really fascinating things to say that no one, that people talk about, but no one is hearing or the angle's wrong. And as a producer, I think the role is to say, that's important and let's get that story out there. So I, I really like that activity. It's on our site under how to do a commentary, which is a great beginning product for people because you're an expert in your own story and you go out from there. Um, and, and I would just say, well, no, just, it's interesting because yes, and um, we've really focused on first person narratives here where the, the idea is come and find your story and tell it. A lot of what Youth Radio does actually is having young people report on issues in their community. Um, so it does, I just wanted to note, it doesn't have to be if a young person, if you want to work with a young person or somebody who would otherwise be a source in a story, it doesn't have to be tell me your tr personal narrative. They can be total allies and co-reporters on issues that are playing out in their communities. They give, can give you access to individuals who are affected, you know, they can give, I mean, so much. So I just, I wish we could do like a whole second part of this that is highlighting the reporting that is about young people looking out into their worlds and getting, and, and getting that story right. Um, so that's another way to think about it. And since I'm on both sides of the fence mm -hmm. as a producer and a reporter, 
Empathy. <laughs> Let me just say that this is a life hack. This one's on me. The next one hundred dollars. Just kidding. But but um, you know this story didn't happen the way it happened because you yourself wanted to get a different method of storytelling. It happened because of empathy. You know that one hour in the studio that we did. It wasn't their idea. It was my idea. Like I. Youth Radio has counselors and therapists and whatnot for young folks to talk, and uh, I've actually been in therapy my whole life. And so for these intensive stories, I need a lot of empathy and support in that way. And I understand that's so hard as a producer, producer because of the ethics and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But um, the empathy comes to play because it's not about how can you make a different method of storytelling and helping a, a person tell a story. It's how can you put yourself in their shoes and figure out what method works for them? Hmm. Because you can't use the same method for everybody. Hmm. You gotta have your own unique method and the way you get that is by having a conversation. Hmm. Hi, thank you, it's Hello. great. Um, I work in the co-creation space and one of the trickiest areas is about ownership of content and how chain of title is managed and I just wondered like with your content should hypothetically someone want to license it for a fee or option it to make a book a film how do you manage chain of title and ownership and ensure that all creators are um, receive something if their work is uh, you know recommissioned or re-optioned mm -hmm. Well, nobody's offered us a book or movie deal as yet, so. <laughs> Let us know that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, um, so Youth Radio is a nonprofit, and young people, I guess we should have said this, like um, after that six months of media education that Teresa talked about, young people apply for paid positions within the organization. So at any given time, we have between 60 and 90 young people who are on the payroll at Youth Radio. So. The work that they're doing is compensated, um, and they have, you know, they have the copyright to their own content, and Youth Radio has the copyright to that content. So we, um, you know, in terms of as a nonprofit, so if we, if somebody is paying us for a piece, it comes to Youth Radio so that Youth Radio has the resources to pay salaries of contributors. So in this situation, just to clarify, you have joint co-copyright of Noel's piece between the Youth Radio and Noel, or as an employee you forfeit that and it belongs to Youth Radio? I think, well, Lissa can speak more to this, but mm -hmm. Youth Radio republishes stories on our site in various platforms, and I think a best practice, and in terms of ownership, that's within the agreement we have. I always let the young people know, because I think it's weird. Like, I talked to V before I came out here to see, by the way, he's doing great, so yay, and also because I like letting people know. But let's say that V or Noel wants to go do a movie about their life. It's not like Youth Radio owns that oh, heck like, no. like yeah. story. <laughs> and we also we produce a lot of music, and like young people love making music, and they would not want to give their music rights to Youth Radio to hold forever. And so I think that is a tricky dance, though, that you do need to figure out as you enter into these more collaborative partnerships of what that not just digital afterlife, but copyright looks like going forward. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the process of making the commentary pieces. Like, um, do you ever leave them as non-narrated pieces using the raw tape, or how do you get from that raw studio interview to the commentary? What kind of decisions are 
you making to evolve it from A to B? Yeah, well, I mean, the piece that we heard from V that um, Desmond's images overlaid was the was just cutting together raw tape from the studio. So that was a version of a commentary that was done in that way. And actually, we um, so sometimes we just have young people write a draft and it's all done on the page and we just go through rounds of edits that way um, and that can happen both in our headquarters in Oakland or we work with young people across the country Rebecca Martin who runs our national network is here and she's always bringing in stories that way where we'll just say we really want an essay from this town this perspective um, but we do find that sometimes starting with the writing is not the way to go and you end up with a draft that reads like a five paragraph English essay or just is super stiff or just doesn't have enough personal narrative or detail so we do kind of live commentary production in the studio, even with kids that we don't know, where we'll you know, be studio to studio with somebody and we'll basically walk through with them in real time that kind of we have a sense of, oh, that's a good beginning. And you kind of bring them into the process and say, you need to kind of co-produce this with me. So I think we have a beginning, it's that. I think we have a middle, it's that. Can you help? Let's, let's talk through something that's gonna work as an ending. And so they're sort of, you know, again, they're not just a source, like you're sort of doing a real time kind of production of that commentary live in the studio. Thank you for your time. Thank you.